Evidence for Business podcast with me, Lauren Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at brain for biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. Sometimes in life, things go wrong. Mistakes, accidents, even disasters will occur. From festivals that fail due to poor advanced planning, product launches that simply fail to, well, launch, through to public construction projects that seem to drag on forever and end up costing much more than originally envisaged. And typically when things do go wrong, there are calls for inquiries, accountability, and the apportionment of blame, sometimes leading to demands for heads to roll. To explore these questions further and to dig deeper into the prevalence of blame games, I'm delighted to be joined on the Brain for Business podcast by Assistant Professor Sandra Rezadihajo. Sandra Rezadihajo is an Assistant Professor of Public Administration at the Institute for Management Research at Radboud University in the Netherlands. Her research focuses on questions relating to safety and security issues and public policy. She has written on agenda setting, policy reform, inquiries, local safety policies, and of course, blame games following crises. She is currently working on resilience and crisis management, blame games and NGOs, and disaster management. Sandra, welcome to Brain for Business. Right, thank you for having me. So let's start with the simple question, what is a blame game? So to understand what a blame game is, it's important to realize that crisis management literature distinguishes between different phases or stages of crisis management. And one of those stages is the accountability phase. And that accountability phase consists of two elements. On one hand, uh, there's learning. Um, the idea being that there will be an evaluation or an inquiry and that will result in findings and you can implement them and hopefully the crisis will not recur again. On the other hand, the second part of the accountability phase is holding people accountable for what went wrong. And the blame game is part of that. And the easiest way to perceive a blame game is basically a game where people are trying to deflect blame or trying to minimize blame all in order to uh, ensure that they're going to stay in office and they do not have to resign or are not fired. And the idea or the underlying idea of my book is that if people understand better how blame games work, hopefully there will be more room for learning because recently, uh, if you look at how things are you know, in the media and things like that, if something happens, the media are much more quicker to say, hey, something went wrong, something should be done, maybe someone should resign, and same goes for politics. And because of that recent development, chances are that our people are more reluctant to share what happened. But if people are reluctant to share what happened, you cannot properly learn. So the idea being is, you know, if you understand how blame games work, uh, how they you know, happen, how you can respond to it, you can better manage it. And therefore, there will be more room within your organization to learn from what happened. I'm conscious you mentioned, say, in, in, in recent times and, and the media, and 
does that suggest perhaps that um, social media has also played a role in in that increase where, where anyone can jump onto Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Telegram, whatever, and just vent and, and demand certain things? That could very well be likely the case. It, it's kind of strange because the blame game research itself is very much focused on what happens in traditional media. So in newspapers and things like that. What you do see is that there's a notable surge in terms of media studies focusing social media, but the link to me, uh, blame games is not really there yet in terms of causal relation. But you know, in all likelihood, because of the way that people are less inclined to accept that something has gone wrong, they will vent it and that might be picked up by politicians and journalists. Okay. Could you perhaps give us some examples of, of blame games that, that people listening might perhaps be familiar with? Yeah, so um, the thing is that blame games are often very local events, uh, local in terms of municipal council, maybe uh, province level, regional level or national level. So there's not like a lot of examples where your audience will immediately say, hey, this is an example known worldwide about this is a blame game. Uh, but I'm sure that the audience you know, can come up with examples of an event that resulted in questions being asked, uh, a lot of upheaval in the media and citizens. Uh, one example that I could come up with that might uh, be familiar uh, to the audience is the Love Parade in Duisburg. That was a festival which happened in 2010. And one of the entryways was also used as an exit. And because of that, uh, people came together in a tunnel. Uh, a number of people were crushed to death. And one of the main players in that accountability phase was the mayor of Duisburg. And he was able to survive a motion of no confidence in the local council, but his own citizens weren't too happy with him. So when there was a new state law to hold a referendum, they used that to vote him out of office. So that might be familiar with some of the audience. And as you mentioned that that example, and, and bearing in mind, as you said, that these things are often quite local or quite specific to different countries or regions, yeah. the, the thought that comes to mind is, is different, say, stadium disasters around the world as well, where there have yeah. been you know, big crushes. And, and I know, for example, in, in, in Liverpool, in England, the Hillsborough disaster is still very strongly remembered and, and we're still trying to understand quite what happened uh, as part of that. Yeah. What then causes that kind of process of blame games or, or attributing uh, blame in, in those circumstances. So what's important to understand is that psychological research has shown that we humans have something which is called a negativity bias. That means that you as a person or your organization could have done very well the last couple of years, but as soon as something goes wrong, uh, then the focus will be on that has gone wrong and anything you did that went well is forgotten the focus will be on hey this is going wrong we're not happy with that and that will cause questions being asked and that's why the reason why in the media people will be interviewed and they'll be saying how could this have happened uh, was there a mismanagement of the crisis could this have been prevented you know basically who's responsible and should someone resign the question then is when it comes to okay what causes blame games and how does it evolve so to speak or how does it start up uh the second Thing to understand is that some events are clearly a crisis. No one is going to dispute that a tsunami followed by a nuclear meltdown is a crisis. Everyone will agree on that. Some other events, however, are not immediately clear as, hey, this is a crisis. 
So what needs to happen then is that there is a kind of consensus being created within society that this event, this incident is actually really, really bad. It shouldn't have happened. And once that there's this shared consensus that this is a crisis, then the question is going to be, okay, was this a one-off event or a symptom of a larger problem? And this is like the fifth time this happened in a very short order. And it shows that, for example, certain ministry is unable to do its job. Now, according to Brandstrom and Kuipers, they say that if it's seen as a one-off event, it's very likely that attention will be focused on the operational level. So it's likely an error by a train driver or a pilot, or it could be that an implementing organization has done something wrong. If on the contrary, the, uh, the focus is more on, hey, this is a, a symptom of a much larger problem, then the focus will shift to the more political level. And in that case, it's going to be the minister or junior minister or maybe even a whole policy sector that is going to face a lot of blame and questions. And I think what's important here for the audience is to realize that this is not something which is set in stone. So it could be that at the start of a crisis, the initial focus will be on the train driver or, you know, someone else who did something wrong. And then there will be an inquiry and that will result in more information and the realization that, hey, you know, yes, that this person might have done something wrong, but he did not receive any training, for example, so he didn't know what to do. And in that case, the attention is going to shift or maybe expand, depending on the case, but it's going to shift towards the minister or the junior minister who's responsible, for example, for the training of the employees in that ministry. So I think that's important to realize that, that it's not a static process. A blame game is very much uh, dynamic. If something else happens, if more, uh, more information comes to the fore, there will be a shift and a, a kind of, hey, does this lead to an increase in blame? Does it lead to a decrease in blame? Does it lead to someone being included in the blame game that was previously not part of the blame game? Mm. So it's a very much a dynamic process. And once you know who's going to be blamed or, you know, like the public or the politicians or the media <laughs> have decided, hey, we're going to focus on this person or this organization, then the question is going to be how much blame are they going to receive? And there are four elements that help to understand how much blame a person is going to get. The first one is the type of crisis. And you can imagine that if a crisis was what is called like an act of God. Like everyone is a victim. This could not have been prevented in any way. Uh, the last time that happened was uh, the volcano in Iceland. Uh, so that was very clear, you know, internationally speaking, an act of God. No one could have prevented that. And nor could it have prevented the result that people were stuck in different countries because they couldn't fly back. So then there's, you know, you can't blame a volcano. But, you know, at, at other times, and that's called a preventable crisis. Something could have been done to prevent it. And as soon as something could have been done to prevent it, that means people will attach blame to, hey, that organization that could have prevented something or that person that could have prevented something. And the second thing that helps to explain how much blame people are going to receive is, did something similar happen before? Because supposedly as something similar happened like five years ago, there was an inquiry, an evaluation. You could have learned from that. You could have implemented lessons to ensure it doesn't happen again, but you didn't. And then that's why the crisis happened again. So that means you can be blamed because you didn't prevent it. The third factor is reputation. The idea being that if 
a person or an organization has a weak or, uh, reputation prior to crisis, you're probably more susceptible to blame because it's going to be easier for your opponents to target you. And the last factor that is of importance is how much avoidable harm was caused by the crisis. Imagine that, you know, a manufacturing plant blows up in the middle of the night, no one is injured. You know, there was no one working there, uh, all the security guards were somewhere else, so no injuries whatsoever. So that's, of course, bad for the company because they have to rebuild the plant and things like that. But outside of that scope, no one was harmed. So in all likelihood, then, uh, the level of blame will be low. But if people were injured, harmed in any way, uh, people died, then that will result in a lot of blame. You mentioned there the negativity bias that, yeah. that we perhaps have as human beings. It strikes me as well, though, and, and I'm thinking here about your reference to what I presume would say Fukushima in, in Japan, the, the, the hindsight bias. Well, if they had known that, and surely someone should have thought that, okay, we can't do anything about a tsunami, but we could think and we should have thought about where to place the nuclear reactor. And really, is that also a factor? In this? Um, sometimes. And it really depends on how the blame game plays out and whether that's brought to the fore. Sometimes, actually, people say, oh, you know, you're just new to the job, so you couldn't have known it. But, you know, next time around, do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it really depends on what's going on. And there are actually uh, some authors who stress the importance to be very careful with that hindsight, because, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You can yep. perfectly see how you could have prevented it. But, you know. That would have, you know, no one has as this kind of clairvoyancy to, you know, see the future and things like that. So sometimes it plays a role and sometimes it's actually explicitly said, hey, you're new. It's fine. Do better next time around. And I guess um, and if we think perhaps about sort of dealing with the blame, part of that challenge as well might be that, you know, thinking of a nuclear reactor, they're not built in the space of a few months. I don't know how long Fukushima had been there, but presumably for a, quite a long time. So the people who made those decisions are possibly and probably not in those the, the roles anymore. They may have even passed away. So it, it's kind of quite, quite difficult then to, to, to properly apportion blame in that regard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how how can you deal with with blame when a, a blame game kicks off so within the literature there's a distinction being made between actions you can take prior to a crisis and actions that you can take during a crisis and the idea with the actions that you can take prior crisis if those strategies work hopefully the blame game will not take off or you can deflect easily to someone else or minimize the whole thing um, and the, there are two strategies that you can do prior to crisis. The first one is called a policy strategy. That basically means that you have created policies or protocols, and if something goes wrong, you can refer to that and say, hey, you know, we just implemented the policy that you in parliament agreed upon. So, you know, <laughs> don't come knocking on our door if we do what you told us to do. The second strategy that you can uh, implement prior to crisis is called an agency strategy, which means that, for example, if you're a minister, you can decide to delegate certain tasks to an implementing organization. And then if something goes wrong, you can say as a minister, hey, I'm only responsible for creating policy. Something went wrong during the implementation stage of that policy. So, you know, look at them, not at me. So you can deflect blame to someone else. 
important here to notice is that such an implementing agency might fight back. So um, they might say, hey, you know, sure, we are responsible for checking whether the food is safe. Uh, but, you know, we, we had to face a lot of budget cuts in the last couple of years. So we did not have enough manpower mm. and, and capacity to actually do that job to our full satisfaction. So don't look at us if something goes wrong there. So it's possible that they're going to push back. It's not like, you know, they're going to roll over and say, yeah, sure, blame us. <laughs> But the idea being with those those actions that you can take prior to crisis, as I said, you know, if they're uh, if they work, it will help to stop the blame game or deflect the blame. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't work, or sometimes they're not in place. Or sometimes people will say, "Oh, you're trying to pass the buck," but we realize that you're trying to do that. So you know, no deal. <laughs> We're still looking at you. And then you get to the actions that you can take during the blame game itself. And these are called presentational strategies. They are mostly rhetoric in nature. So, you know, your talk, you respond by saying something. Uh, some of those actions are not rhetoric, but they're actual actions, like making sure that new policies made, uh, making sure that people receive financial uh, you know, compensation or whatnot to make sure that things are, uh, can be improved in their lives or uh, appointing inquiry. Those are examples of non-rhetorical responses. Uh, rhetorical responses could be you could deny there's a crisis or you could mitigate it to say sure something happened but fortunately it was very small very localized not that serious or you could acknowledge that that you know something was wrong but you're going to look at someone else and say well you know they were responsible for and then you fill in the blanks what they were responsible for it also includes apologizing uh say you know my organization was indeed responsible for what happened, and I, as a minister or you know, uh, organizational leader or whatnot, am responsible. That could be accompanied with a resignation. Doesn't have to. They could also argue, hey, you know, it's clear that my organization needs to be reorganized, and I'm going to I'm going to be staying in office to make sure that that's going to uh, work out well. So I know how the organization works. Uh, I know best, and it's important that there is some stability during these coded times, so I should stay in office. So as you can see, I mean, the responses can be very defensive. Hey, there's no crisis, or no, it's, you know, it's not that bad, uh, to very accommodative, saying, hey, I'm sorry, I'm going to resign. And then the question pops up, how do you ensure that you're going to take or pick the correct response to the blame you're facing? So what's important here is to realize that on the one hand, uh, the blame response can vary between very defensive and very accommodative. Uh, at the same time, the blame levels can also you know, range from very calm. There might even be some positive media coverage going on uh, to very, very stormy. And in that case, even people who are normally supporting you are saying, shouldn't you resign? But the hypothesis is that you should select a blame response that fits the level of blame you're facing. So if you're facing a lot of blame, you can imagine that if you opt for a very defensive response, people are just going to be very angry with you. And then, you know, the blame will explode even further. So you have to match it a bit about, you know, what's going on here? How should I respond? As you were uh, outlining those different strategies there, one of them you mentioned was inquiries and um, you know, 
I'm originally from Australia and uh, royal commissions are a very big thing. And at the moment, there are different inquiries in different countries into the responses to, to the COVID-19 pandemic. What role do, do these inquiries play in, in blame games? So when it comes to inquiries, and as you said, you've got royal commissions uh, in England and Australia, uh, here in the Netherlands, you've got parliamentary inquiries, but you also got um, inquiries that have less power, so to speak, that can just, you know, investigate stuff, but not call people to parliament to say, hey, you have to answer questions. So it's important to realize you've got different types of inquiries and with different powers. Having said that, when it comes to inquiries themselves, uh, you can distinguish between general reasons why you should appoint an inquiry and more of a kind of strategic reasons why crisis managers might want to opt to appoint an inquiry. So generally speaking, inquiries can help to figure out what went wrong. Uh, so that helps to learn from the event and then it helps to prevent it. It is also seen as a tool or a way to gain or regain the trust of the citizens because if something went really bad and really wrong uh, there might be a, a trust issue at stake in terms of hey do we trust government to do this in the future correctly and that means that the legitimacy of government is, is, is getting on shaky ground so to speak so appointing inquiry can help to showcase hey we're trying everything in our you know in our power to make sure it doesn't help us again. So it's also about alleviating the public fears in that regard about, hey, we're doing something, we want to prevent it in the future. And lastly, I think inquiries are also important when it comes to bringing closure. Depending on how the inquiry is set up, so you're, you're also referring to the COVID-19. Uh, so it depends whether the bereaved and, and, and people who are suffering from low con uh, uh, long COVID, uh, whether they are included and whether they can have a say, but if they can have a say, if victims and bereaves can have a say, it will help them to bring closure. It doesn't, you know, complete closure and now everything is fine. That's not, but it helps them along the way of dealing with grief. So those are kind of general reasons why you would like to appoint an inquiry. And crisis managers can also have some additional reasons why they want to appoint an inquiry. First off, just by appointing it, they are taking action, they are doing something. And that can you know, be used as a kind, kind of, hey, see, we're doing something. We're trying to manage the whole process here. So the second thing is that they might hope, doesn't always work like that, but they might hope that by appointing inquiry, it will remove the issue from the debate. But again, that depends on whether there's nothing else going on in the news. So if it's summertime, it's more likely that <laughs> news is like, hey, you know, let's pay attention to this. But it also depends on... Uh, how the inquiry is being run and whether there are public hearings, so to speak, that journalists can attend. And in that case, they will ensure that public uh, media coverage is going to continue. So then, you know, your second reason is a crisis manager to do this is not valid or it doesn't work. The third reason is to stall for time and basically hoping that by the time the inquiry comes out, other issues are uh, much more prominently placed on the agenda and so you can just receive the report, say thanks. And then, you know, so again, sometimes it works like that. Sometimes it doesn't because the publication of the report, especially if it's accompanied with a press conference and things like that, will actually draw the attention of the media. And then, you know, consequently will maybe result in questions being asked uh, by the public or by politicians. 
we've already referred to the the, the Fukushima nuclear power station in, in Japan. And I'm curious just to, to maybe return not so much to, to Fukushima per se, but but more to organizations that have, have been called high reliability organizations. So uh, it's it's those organizations that simply cannot afford to fail. So a nuclear power station or you know, an aircraft, for, for example, when it's flying at 30,000 feet or, um, or, or, or other sorts of organizations. Are, are blame games worse in those sorts of contexts when failure uh, does happen? Because, as I said, failure is simply not really meant to be an option. I think that's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm going to answer that by using theory because I haven't investigated myself. High reliability organizations are organizations where safety is the number one priority. And everything they do within the organization is aimed towards ensuring safety. So there's a lot of training and things like that. And um, one of the books that I am uh, really enjoy reading and I use it a lot uh, when I teach and 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 there's a very interesting kind of questionnaire in that that I really recommend people to just take to figure out to what extent, you know, is my organization open towards learning and ensuring mistakes are prevented in the future and things like that. It's a book called Managing the Unexpected by Wyken Sutcliffe. So they talk about HROs and the principles of HROs being used to ensure that, you know, how can you be resilient uh, in your organization? And one of the things that really uh, stuck out to me as a reader and as a scholar is the importance they play on culture within the organization. And that if you have an organizational culture where people are invited to say, hey, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. In fact, uh, I can certainly point out that in one of their examples that people are rewarded if they come forward to say, hey, you know, I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> That's why something <laughs> happened, oops. Because that means that the organization can quickly figure out what went wrong and make sure it doesn't happen in the future. So if you have a culture like that, where people are proactively invited to give alternative views on what's happening, to really think about how can we improve the organization, but also feel very safe in saying, hey, I did something wrong. How can we prevent this in, in the future? I think if you've got an organization like that, I think blame games should be almost non-existent because reporting mistakes is invited and welcomed. If we, we sort of build upon the, the discussion so far, I'm curious to ask about the role of, of, of leadership. What, what role would you say that leaders play in ensuring that the blame games either don't occur or if they do, that they are managed effectively? And when I say managed effectively, I don't mean sort of shut down and forgotten, but, but actually, you know, engaged with yeah, in, yeah. in a meaningful way. Um, so based on what I've read and based on what I've seen so far in my own research, but mostly based on what I've read, a distinction should be made between what a leader can do within his own organization and what a leader can do outside of the organization. Because sometimes blame games are happening within an organization and sometimes it's outside in society as a whole and there's a different dynamic going on there. So when it comes to the organization, what a leader could do is, you know, read Wyken Sutcliffe <laughs> and then, you know, really start to consider, am I actually fostering a culture where alternative viewpoints are welcomed, where uh, I am uh, consciously hiring people from diverse backgrounds and uh, different disciplines so that we can get a complete view and a complete understanding of what's happening in the organization and how to solve it. Am I, as a leader, fostering a culture where people feel safe to come forward and say, 
hey, something went wrong in our department or I did something wrong. So that's something that you can do as a leader within an organization. When it comes to outside of the organization, what's important here is that leaders understand the importance of framing and how things are framed, how things are spoken about can have a huge effect on how the blame game evolves. Starting with the fact that if an incident is not immediately seen as a crisis, that offers an opportunity for those involved to either you know, help to define it as a non-crisis, or maybe if you're a leader and you're looking forward to reform something, but up till then you are facing a lot of obstacles to achieve that, you might actually try to frame it as a, hey, this is really bad, <laughs> we should do something. Hey, I've got a reform package here, you know? So you can use it then, you can use framing to try to get a certain outcome. And it's also that, as I said before, uh, so the presentational strategies are mostly rhetoric in nature. So that's also framing. But we also talked about inquiries. And if for some reason you are able to help write the frame of reference of an inquiry, so what their assignment is going to be about, that determines what the scope of the inquiry likely is going to be. Of course, a chair of an inquiry can become very uh, independent and say, okay, thank you for this frame of reference. I'm going to just interpret it just a tad differently. But you know, if that doesn't happen and if they follow the instructions closely, then being able to help phrase what those instructions are can also have a huge impact on what's going to happen and what the investigation is going to focus on. I've mentioned already some of the in inquiries that um, have been completed and then was underway in, in various countries into the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. But, but more broadly, how did blame games play out during the, 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 the pandemic? So crisis itself was, was really bad in terms of you know, what happened and how people were affected by it. And a lot of people lost people and, and may still face the consequences of that crisis. As a scholar, it offered us a unique opportunity to look at what happens because we've got a singular crisis, a similar crisis that is you know, affecting a lot of countries. And some countries were using or implementing the same measures to help deal with COVID-19. Now, Paul Copeland and I uh, studied four cases where uh, people responsible for creating or promoting or implementing COVID-19 measures failed to actually abide by these measures. So for instance, here in the Netherlands, we had a, um, a minister of justice, uh, he was very strict and he was all, uh, always kind of, you know, telling the people about or the public about, it's very important that you abide by these rules and things like that. He was really stressing that. And during his own wedding, uh, he ignored social distancing rules by hugging his mother-in-law. So that created some upheaval, you can understand, because he was so strict mm. and, you know, his message was abide by the rules, abide by the rules. So you can understand that when he failed to abide by those rules, it's like, hey. <laughs> so we had four cases like that. We had, for those familiar with those cases, we had Calderwood, which, um, who was responsible as a, a CMO in Scotland uh, for creating and promoting policies uh, that included, you know, you were not allowed to travel unless it was essential. And she and her family traveled to their holiday home twice. Uh, then we had Ferguson, the, that case where 
university scholar was part of an advisory team in the UK and he was promoting lockdown measures, but uh, his girlfriend uh, visited him. So, you know, again, breaking of the rules. So we had the Dutch case I just talked about, and we had a, a, a second Dutch case where the mayor of Amsterdam, who was really responsible for en enforcing social distancing rules, did not do so during a demonstration and that raised questions as well. Okay, why didn't you do that? So because the four cases had such similarities in terms of type of crisis, we also, mm. yeah, there were quite a lot of similarities between the UK and the Netherlands in terms of measures being taken. It allowed us to take a look at, okay, can we see some interesting new aspects that otherwise we would not see if we just have a single case. And what we saw here is that, um, I'm just gonna highlight two, sure. um, is that there's a difference between politicians. So in the Dutch two cases, there were politicians or public leaders or, you know, uh, public leaders would be a better word to, to, um, you know, to define their position. So we've got a mayor, we've got a minister. And in the, in the UK, we had experts. And our hypothesis is that experts do not have access to the same arenas in which blame games are being played out as public office holders. So in all four cases, if they wanted to, they could have accessed the media arena. Ferguson chose not to, he just resigned right away. Calderwood, if I remember correctly, there was a press conference, but Sturgeon did much of the talking. And in the Netherlands, the, the two persons, they, you know, they responded to interviews and things like that. And uh, But those two Dutch persons also, I'm sorry, I don't know what actually Grapperhaus did hold press conferences. I know that Halsema responded to some questions on TV. I'm not sure about Grapperhaus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what you see here is that in the Dutch case, you've got two public office holders they also had access to the le legislative arena. So on the one hand, that means that they faced a lot of pressure, you know, and there's the potential of motions of no confidence, of course, in a legislative arena like parliament or the municipal council. Uh, but our hypothesis is that if you survive a debate and nothing new happens and no new information come to, comes to the fore, the blame game will just, you know, will stop because you answered all the questions and people were happy with the way you answered questions by uh, members of parliament or by councillors. So that's it. That's fine then. Okay. So the real differences there in terms of how they were approached and how they were handled and possibly the career impacts as well, depending on, on, on who was involved and, and how they handled it. If people wanted to find out more about your research, Sandra, is there any way you could suggest uh, they should go? Um, so the easiest way is just to put my last name in Google. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you might combine it with university and then, then, you know, I will pop up as the first one. If you are interested in reading the book that I published on Blame Games, it's titled Crisis Inquiries and the Politics of Blame. But I also have um, recently published an open access article uh, or a chapter actually from an edited book. And that's about Blame Games which focuses more on multi-level blame games. It, it's more of a an avenue of, hey, I'm going to talk about what are blame games in and by itself, and then a potential interesting avenue for exploration is multi-level blame games, because we talked about COVID-19, and COVID-19 was a transboundary crisis, and that means mm -hmm. that it's not just crossing boundaries between countries, 
but within a single country, it also crosses boundaries between different government levels, different policy sectors, etc. And that means it was a very complicated crisis to manage. It also means a lot of actors were involved at different levels. And that's where the concept of multi-level blame games comes into play, because that means that sometimes it's actually not clear who's responsible because there's so many actors involved in managing it. So that's something that I talk about in, in uh, a chapter which is called uh, Blame Games, uh, Stories of Crises, Causes and Culprits. So if you just Google that, it will, you know, you will be moved to the Springer website and just scroll down and you can, this is open access so you can you know, read it for free. And I'll make sure to put links into the uh, into the show notes. Sandra Rizzi Hajo of uh, Hartbald University in the Netherlands. Many thanks for your time today. All right, thank you.